You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York, in for Emily Chang, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, the New York City subway shooting. The suspect has been arrested and faces terrorism charges. We'll bring you the details this hour. Meanwhile, the shares of Lithium Corporation sold 280% after a completely fake press release claimed EV giant Tesla had bought the Nevada miner. Bloomberg got to the bottom of it. And quick crypto startup Circle. It lands $400 million in funding from investors like BlackRock and Fidelity. What that means for broader institutional adoption of crypto later this hour. First and foremost, we bring you a story close to home for us right now. Biggest story of the day. We got him. Those were the words from the New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Law enforcement officials say they have arrested Frank James in Manhattan in connection with Tuesday's shooting at a Brooklyn subway station. New York City Police Commissioner Kishan Sewell says the 62-year-old was apprehended with the help of the public. Officers, in response to a Crime Stoppers tip, stopped Mr. James at 1.42 p.m. at the corner of St. Mark's Place and First Avenue in Manhattan. He was taken into custody without incident and has been transported to an NYPD facility. Now, police say James has nine prior arrests in New York, dating back between 1992 to 1998. These 23 people, of course, were hurt in yesterday's attack when he let off 33 shots, we understand, from his firearm. Joining now is Fola Akinabi. And Fola, you've been reporting on the ground about this and understanding really the ramifications this has for the city, the city's leadership, but first and foremost, 30 hours? This man was on the streets of New York, on the subway of New York, on, on, on other perhaps forms of public transit. Is this being deemed a success or not, do you think? Officials, I was at NYPD headquarters when officials made the announcement, and, and uh, officials seemed to be, uh, yeah, deeming this a success. But, but yeah, in the, in the aftermath of the, of the attack, um, you know, it was reported that uh, cameras in the subway station were out. Um, uh, James, uh, the, 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 the suspected uh, shooter, um, was said to have uh, left the station and entered another station at, at 9.15 a.m. And then officials said that, that was, those were his last known whereabouts. And that, that, that was, um, you know, more than 24 hours ago. Um, and, and so then he was, he was eventually apprehended at, at 1, 1 p.m. So um, there are at least 
24 hours uh, that, that officials have not explained uh, or have not been able to explain uh, uh, you know, where, where, this, where this person was. An extraordinary use of technology and failing of technology with the cameras, which uh, the NYPD it felt was very quick to make out was the responsibility of MTA, the, of course, public transit, um, to be looking after and ensuring. However, technology has been used, whether it be from you know, just the social media clips that we see of the man that actually helped apprehend him from the streets, but also the way in which we, as the members of the public, were sent messages through our phones, ways that we gave tips and the like. Do you think that this is also a test, in a way, of, of crime prevention with a relatively new administration here in New York? Yeah, and, and, and uh, Mayor Eric Adams has suggested that uh, he would like to, to use even more technology to, to, um, to, to help uh, prevent crime. It's not clear what exactly he, he plans to do. Um, there, have, there has been a lot of talk about, uh, again, the cameras at the subway station and whether uh, there needs to be a, a review of, of, of uh, what happened there and of the cameras in the entire system and whether there needs to be uh, other measures taken uh, to prevent uh, incidents like this. But these aren't common spending as well, whether it be on the police force or, or parts of its support system and indeed infrastructure? You know, in, in the preliminary budget that, that the mayor released, um, you know, we saw the, the, the New York uh, Police Department's budget uh, remain, you know, relatively flat uh, year over year. And, you know, it's, it's the largest police department by, by far in, in, in America. And, and um, I guess what that means is that, uh, you know, headcount is staying the same. And so it, it seems that uh, uh, at least from, from the public budget, that's, that's not where, the, that's not where the, um, the technology will come from. But there, there are other places uh, uh, that, that police receive both technology and, and funds. Fola, you've been all across the story for several days, emotional at the moment as well, I'm sure. Fola, going to be really great reporting in terms of the leadership of the city. Meanwhile, we want to take the justice perspective right now and, of course, what the accused perhaps now faces in the courts. Kenneth Gray, senior lecturer in the Criminal Justice Department at University of New Haven, I'm pleased to say, is with us. Ken, your perspective, what's been notable is the federal, of course, now prosecution that seems to be unfolding, and it's a terror, terrorism-related charge. So the reason for that, in my opinion, is the fact that there's a lot more exposure for uh, Frank James here. Uh, that is, he's looking at for, this is uh, Title 18 U.S.C. 1992, which is uh, a terrorist act on a train or other modes of mass transportation. It carries with it a life sentence, up to a life sentence. That's far greater than he would get for this uh, mass shooting that he did. Uh, so th I think the decision to go federally on this is much more that of the exposure for the charge. Ken, we are, of course, a global network, and sometimes federal versus local doesn't make a lot of sense. I'm the daughter of Crown Prosecution Service lawyers in the UK, where most of these sorts of prosecutions are done by the Crown, by the nation. Why? What is the distinction between local law enforcement, local prosecution, federal prosecution, and, and how do you know which one's going to take charge? So in this particular case, you saw at the event itself that there was a real enmeshment there between both state, uh, local, and federal law enforcement. NYPD was identified as the lead agency on that case, but that it, there was input from the FBI, from the state police, from uh, ATF. And so law enforcement was all working together. 
when it comes time to prosecute this case, the district attorney's office works with the U.S. attorney's office to decide which way the case is going to go. But I don't want you to get the impression that they were fighting among one another, but instead the decision was made to go federally because of the potential exposure here. Of course, we are all innocent before being proven guilty. And it was interesting in the press conference, some labor was made of prior, well, acts, criminal acts that occurred back in the 90s in the state of New York, but also the state of, you know, Philadelphia and New Jersey. What, what will that be made of in court? So it shows a propensity to do violence, a propensity to do criminal acts. Uh, the, the person's uh, criminal history is always brought into any case. So uh, again, this is just routine that you would discuss uh, for any suspect in a case. You would discuss their prior history, prior criminal history. We are, of course, a technology show. And what's been interesting and what's been made of in the media and trying to understand who Frank James is and, and what his motives were is also questioning what his state of mind was and people looking at YouTube evidence, people looking at his social media posts. How admissible is that in court? Well, it's uh, part, part of the uh, public record that is he's posted on YouTube. Uh, there is no expectation of privacy there, so anything he put onto YouTube would be admissible. Uh, but I think this case shows very much that we live in a surveillance society, that there were cameras everywhere. The cameras on that platform failed. But uh, the, the combination of a quick investigation was able to identify him. His picture was put out, and that was the thing that eventually either got him to call the Crime Stopper number himself or some individual recognizing him contacted the police. It's not clear which way that actually happened at this moment. Ken Gray, really great to have your expertise, of course. A lot of time spent interlinking the private sector with the criminal justice sector. And of course, he is a senior lecturer of the criminal justice department at the University of New Haven. We thank you. get to another Musk moment on Twitter Wednesday because kind of fascinating really overall that we once again are seeing well just how you might expect shares of lithium miner that is lithium corporation jumping 280% after a fake press release circulated on Twitter saying Tesla had acquired the Nevada company. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow spotted something was off got to the bottom of it he joins us again now and Ed talk to us about Tesla, about Musk, about what actually happened here. You know, even by Musk and Tesla standards, this was odd, right? And I was sitting at my desk and I saw some tweets from some of the community that follow Elon Musk and tw Twitter, some of the Tesla owners and shareholders, and they were sharing screen grabs of a press release that said Tesla had acquired Lithium Corporation. You go on the Bloomberg terminal, look at the share chart, and just after 11.30 Eastern, the stocks jumped 280%. Hmm. But I looked at the image of the press release, and I thought, none of this adds up. 5W Public Relations, you may know them, Caroline, you know, well-known PR company, they don't represent Tesla, and they certainly don't represent Lithium Corporation. So we started hitting the phones and of course it was a fake release and there are still questions how it ended up on newswires but what's astonishing is the release was published yesterday hmm. on tuesday and the market's reacting look at that chart on wednesday it's been a wild day <laughs> 
Official responses, actual technical official responses coming from the companies? Yeah, so what happened was we got an email from the president of Lithium Corporation, Tom Lewis, who called this fake news. His words, fake news. There's no deal with Tesla. Of course, Tesla didn't respond. They don't have an active press or comms department. It was disbanded in 2020. And later, Lithium Corp actually issued a press release saying, you know, contrary to what had been reported, there was no discussion with Tesla. But here's the interesting part. Mm -hmm. They go on to say none of their employees left to go and join Tesla, but they'd be happy to chat with Elon Musk if he was so inclined. And we know this is an area Elon Musk is interested in, so maybe they're just shooting their shot, you know, <laughs> taking their opportunity. Talk to us about that area he's interested in, because he has talked yeah. about, on Twitter, funnily enough, lithium miners. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, you know, lithium is a really core component that goes into the cell chemistry used in cells for EV batteries. And Elon Musk tweeted quite recently, just five days ago, that it's not that there isn't enough supply. There's abundant supply of lithium all over the world. You see it there in that tweet. It's the extraction that's the problem. And, that you know, domestic production of lithium mm -hmm. here in the United States lags behind international markets. So there's been speculation this might happen. But on this occasion, I'm afraid, Caroline, this was fake news. There is no deal between Tesla and Lithium Corporation. Ed Ludlow bringing us the real news. We thank you. Meanwhile, speaking of Musk using Twitter, let's talk about who used to lead Twitter, Jack Dorsey. And of course, ever since leaving that business and technically as CEO, has become more and more focused on next big vision, crypto, in particular Bitcoin. If Bitcoin existed before Twitter started, I think we would see completely different business models. I think we'd see a lot less of the issues that um, advertising systems can bring up uh, in terms of privacy and um, you know uh, everything we're seeing around surveillance capitalism as well. Jack Dorsey, Block CEO, of course, speaking in February at MicroStrategy's World Annual Conference. And now for more on this, I want to bring in Sarah Fryer for our Bloomberg Big Take, because it is a beautifully written story, a lot of obnoxiousness that goes in that makes you laugh. But talk to us first and foremost about Jack Dorsey and when his love for Bitcoin really first arose. It, it really came to the forefront when Jack Dorsey went on a trip to Africa. This was, of course, the, the trip that activist investors later used against him because when he went there, he, he saw how people were, were working with payments, how Bitcoin could be a, a really fundamental technology in an a underbanked part of the world. And he was so inspired by that that he said he wanted to move there for three to six months sometime in the future. And activist investors of course seized on that and said uh, well you're not paying attention to the companies you run mm -hmm. well now he's not running Twitter anymore but he's absolutely obsessed with Bitcoin he's he's um, you know as Kurt describes the, the sort of spiritual leader of, of Bitcoin uh, and the idea that it, it has this sort of utopian utopian I should say decentralized vision for how it can change the world yeah and it is a great headline Bitcoin spiritual leader after Twitter but of course he's not just at Twitter, he is still, of course, CEO of Block, which is a fintech, which is a company that may well be used to embracing, embracing new forms of, of payment. And in that respect, what is his current role looking like at Block within the Bitcoin scheme? Well, he's really trying to make Block a, a leader in the, the mass acceptance of, of Bitcoin, even going so far as to say Block will, will support people 
adding Bitcoin mining properties in their own homes. Um, this is just where he thinks the future is headed. And one thing that uh, Kurt Wagner points out in this great story, which which we've seen through the last decade of, of Dorsey in tech, is when he sees where the future is headed, he tends to be right. He doesn't always execute on that vision perfectly, but he was one of the first investors in Instagram. He was the one who told um, Twitter to buy Vine, which you know died at Twitter, but was the format that later was popularized with TikTok. Um, he over and over picks where the future is going to head. So what what folks are saying is if he's pointing towards Bitcoin as the future, we better pay attention to that. Sarah Fry, fascinating. We thank you so much. It's a great read, a great headline, great editing. And indeed, we thank you for bringing the Bloomberg Big Take. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde, in for Emily Chang. And in the pandemic, we've brought about many young people, and particularly, I think, of the heady days of GameStop in 2021. It drew them to the stock market, an interesting place to be putting your money while you're sat at home. And interestingly, Atomic Invest is targeting these, maybe call them rookie investors, trying to allow normal people, you and me, to have access to the market's benefits. Joining us now, CEO David Dindy. Really interesting about the focus on financial inclusion at this moment. Now, there is this worry, perhaps, that with the euphoria that came with GameStop and everyone rushing into Robin Hood, we then get back to our normal lives. We start wanting to get out, being sat in bars rather than trading online. But is there still that pent-up desire, and are we seeing wealth built by it? I think that 2020 was a very interesting year. It got a lot of people to participate in the market uh, out of speculation. 
But as you mentioned, as people are coming back to their normal days and their normal lives, there is that need for them to continue investing, but they don't have the time to think about their portfolio, to construct a diversified portfolio. And so part of what's very important right now is for them to have solutions that enable them to start building wealth, even if they don't have enough time to do the research necessary to uh, start that journey themselves. Okay, so how is Atomic Invest doing just that? How are you build, helping build out the infrastructure that allows us to have a diversified portfolio? That's a good question. If you think about what it took Robinhood, Wealthfront, and Betterment and other digital investing platforms to create their infrastructure, mm -hmm. it required about hundreds of millions of dollars, years uh, for them to build and maintain that infrastructure. What Atomic is doing is enabling banks, fintechs, and credit unions to be able to very easily launch similar investing uh, platforms hmm. in just a number of weeks without having to go through the burden of reinventing the wheel from scratch. Uh-oh, so for the likes of Robinhood, which share price has been, shall we say, under pressure, uh, competition, I assume. Everyone's going to be able to start offering a more accessible way to invest, right? Yeah, in the next three to five years, uh, we wouldn't be able to count the number of investing platforms in our hands. Investing will be ubiquitous. Banks, fintechs, credit unions, payment apps, anyone will have the opportunity to start their investing journey through these platforms. Is the financial regulation there for it, though? It is, uh, in the sense that part of what we do at Atomic is we take over that regulatory burden mm -hmm. for companies, for them to be able to offer investing without them having to build up the regulatory expertise uh, to manage that solution, because we cover that for them. David, I know that you're looking to move back to the US. I moved to the US from Europe in 2018 and was dumbfounded by the lack of fintech seeming innovation there seemed and, and, and many felt that it was really being born in London in Europe because the regulation was there is that the case why do you think that there has been some stark successes but perhaps fewer of them than we are used to over in Europe that's that's a great question um, I think that by and large um, financial services were concentrated among large institutions large banks large asset managers that provided a monolithic solution for everyone. Uh, I think what we've seen happen over the last uh, couple of years is a lot of entrepreneurial activity around building platforms that are targeted at helping specific types of people. And we're seeing an explosion of this. Uh, just in the last couple of months, we've been able to speak to over 400 fintech companies that are really focused on helping people build wealth, helping people have financial uh, platforms that otherwise weren't available to them. David, are you hopeful because, you know, you sit here with a fabulous education and with like a focus on, on what is deeply complex. I have the great fortune of talking about business day in, day out, but I know how, even for me, you know, intimidating, say, the world of crypto is because of the analogies that are suddenly used, because of the acronyms, because, and I feel that that's almost what Wall Street tried to build up back in the days of, of the heady days of 2008 with CLO this, CDO that. How intimidating is finance still for people who really are at the lower income space that we want to see included, that we want to see build wealth? Very intimidating. Uh, we see that most people don't feel investing is for them because in the past, not as much effort has been taken to help them uh, participate in investing. And so many people are still very risk averse. Many people require a significant amount of handholding. 
And I think this comes down to the fact that there is an educational gap when it comes to financial literacy mm. and investing that has to be addressed in this country. Yeah. How? Like, is that about education? Because at the moment I see some really great content on things like TikTok and on Twitter, and I'd love to hope that like we and I can provide to that. But there's also a lot of rubbish on there too. I think it's a, a three-pronged strategy. Uh, the first, let's say the ideal solution would be for investing education to be part of the high school curriculum mm. so that people can learn what investing is and what investing isn't, so that people can learn the benefits of not putting all your eggs in one basket, but really about diversification. I think that would be, in the ideal world, what would be best. What we're seeing happen today is actually quite interesting, where there are platforms that Atomic, for instance, is working with that are targeting people who have been disenfranchised in the past and allowing people essentially to be able to participate in investing and to educate those people in the context in which they are. I do think that work also has to be done through social media and through influencers because, as you mentioned, most of the content that's out there might be focused on what's buzzworthy. Mm -hmm. And if someone is receiving their investing tips from there, it's likely they'll end up with a basket of individual securities or asset classes that aren't diversified. And so I think a lot of work has to be done as well in not only having uh, voices that are speaking about what's trendy, but also voices that are thinking or speaking about the benefits of planning for the future, diversification, asset allocation, and other uh, principles of investing that are very important to adhere to. Well said. Hopefully you can keep being that influence. Atomic Invest CEO, co-founder David Dindy there. We want to go back to another key story we've been tracking here at Bloomberg because New York City law enforcement officials have arrested Frank James, 62-year-old in Manhattan in connection with Tuesday's shooting at a Brooklyn subway station. He will face federal terrorism charges. We're joined now by Bloomberg's Skylar Woodhouse, who's been tracking this from an infrastructure sort of perspective. We are a technology show here, of course, and what's been really demonstrative is perhaps the worry about lack of investment in our transit. And indeed, you know, it was largely blamed on the MTA that the cameras at that subway station weren't working, malfunctioning, for example. Tell us a little bit about the state of the MTA right now. Yeah, so the MTA for, for years has been trying to catch up and basically be, become this, you know, modern transportation agency. They're trying to keep up with Tokyo and London and Paris and what's happening abroad and, you know, so this incident is not really helping in terms of looking at the actual infrastructure of the MTA. The cameras weren't working when the shooting happened. So you know there's a lot that the MTA has to reconsider and now take a step back and look at so that way they can c continue to basically you know, make this system as modern as possible, especially with technology advancing so rapidly. You mm -hmm. know, they have to keep up with the pace of the demand of technology. And to be fair to the MTA, perhaps there is camera footage taken at different subway stations when we know that the uh, accused did ride later on in the day and, and were able to piece that together and eventually apprehend him in East Village a little bit earlier. I'm interested in now, you know, for, for people who are based around the world right now, what what is it like? How, how comfortable are we getting on a transit system, a mass transit system at this moment where we didn't want to get on it anyway because of COVID? You know, I think 
now that this this um, um, now that Frank James has been caught, I think there's a little bit of relief mm -hmm. um, to writers. But there still is this lingering thought in the back of people's minds where it's like, um, what's going to happen next? Do we know when you know something else could happen? Who knows? It might not be a shooting. It could be a train colliding with another train. You know, there's so many different safety components to riding the subways, and you know, I think a lot of people have that in the back of their mind right now, given the pandemic and so much happening in the world. Like a lot of people are are they're on edge a little bit, and you know, they're they're worried, you know, because no one knows what will happen and when it will happen, and they don't mm. want to be that person. Of course, much pressure currently being placed on the administration, and you a relatively new administration, to invest in public infrastructure. Of course, the infrastructure bill in and of itself from a federal level likely to help. Mm -hmm. But will it, where do you think the, the duress is at the moment to put money to work in the MTA? You know, I think the biggest issue right now for the MTA or one of the issues is just it's bringing riders back to again so that way you can bring in another source of revenue, yes. but also just to get service back to where it is pretty, you know, reliable for its customers. And I think once, it, once the service gets back to a, a steady pace and just a more routine, kind of going back to what it was pre-pandemic, then we might start to see progress um, get better, essentially. I mean, they're, they're bringing in a new chief, um, a, new, a new subway president. So, you know, he's like, okay, we got to improve subway service, so therefore improve ridership, to therefore build on, you know, all of the layering issues facing the MTA. Here's to a virtuous circle. We thank you. Skylar Woodhouse. Some great reporting there. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Time for our crypto report now, and we've learned that the much-anticipated Ethereum merge, well, it likely will be completed in well, a few months after June, according to one of the leading Ethereum software developers. Let's bring in our crypto contributor, Shanali Basak, for more on this. The merge, of course, the much-anticipated way in which we go from proof of work to proof of stake, and, and, and talk to us a little bit about you know, how this might be done in a few months' time. Yeah, it's very interesting. This has been highly anticipated, as you have said, and now we have 
one of the leading software developers on Ethereum tweeting that this will likely be a few months after June. No firm date yet, but that we're in the final chapter likely of proof of work on Ethereum. Now, as you know, Bitcoin evangelists really have concerns about proof of stake over proof of work and debates around the energy consumption here. But this could really be a game changer for Ethereum that also has uh, more than 100 billion worth of DeFi projects that are contingent on this merge. Uh, yeah, talk about some of the projects that spin off from this. Talk about other projects, protocols, other altcoins that actually we now sort of brace ourselves that could have it their moment in the sun again. Yeah, just a couple of days ago we were talking about how altcoins were selling off more than Bitcoin. But now as you see Bitcoin emerge again and rise again, you are also seeing that on the other side. There are some altcoins like Avalanche that are rising at an even faster pace in the last 24 hours than Bitcoin. And if you track actually a group of 100 altcoins, you see that over the year, the, that group of 100 is actually also rising as a faster pace. And coin market cap really showing that Bitcoin is becoming a smaller percentage of the ecosystem mm. at large as this altcoin universe expands. There's always that question, Caroline, what remains at the end of the day and what takes off? I mean, these layer one protocols also have gained a lot of excitement uh, when it comes to not just Ethereum, but Bitcoin and that adoption of the Lightning Network really changing the way people use these we haven't even networks. Yeah, going on to Solana, Cardano, Avalanche, as you mentioned, plenty of exciting other areas that you can be investing in. And they're, of course, the ones in which perhaps aren't less tethered to a US dollar. But one area that we also wanted to discuss a little bit is stable coins and the use therein. We'll move on to our key story of crypto payments company Circle, also the issuer of the second largest stable coin, which is USD coin, just landing $400 million in funding from some of the biggest institutional players. BlackRock, Fidelity Investments. Very pleased to say that Jeremy Allaire is going to be joining Shanali and I, CEO of Circle. First and foremost, Jeremy, the 400 million, what is it going to be used for? Well, th thanks for having me on, Caroline. Um, you know, the, the 400 million has been part of our capital plan for continuing to scale, invest. We're growing internationally. We're building very significant investments in, in product development. Uh, we're investing in sales and marketing around you know, getting more and more, you know, literally thousands of businesses to uh, use USDC as an infrastructure to build on USDC as a core part of their applications, mm. driving more use cases in, in payments, commerce, financial apps. So it's really investment capital and growth capital to, uh, to continue to drive the uh, in incredible growth and adoption that we've seen over the past couple of years. Incredible growth and adoption that is predicated on institutional players getting involved. Now, Fidelity, we know, had sort of pinned its horse to the race that is crypto and got involved in this space earlier. But it was interesting that, well, BlackRock, to a large extent, we knew was helmed by Larry Fink and himself, a little bit of a cautious cynic, dare I say it, of the world of crypto, but had started to write about the infrastructure play, the, the payments, the, the way in which it could facilitate trades. Is that really what's going on here, the use of stable coins? Why, why would BlackRock get involved? Well, look, uh, we're very excited. This is a corporate strategic investment from BlackRock. Uh, it's not investing their clients' money. It's their own money. And uh, alongside it, a strategic partnership has been formed between Circle and BlackRock, uh, which is focused on you know, the reserve management model for USDC. They are a primary manager of the reserves that back USDC, uh, which is really important uh, to, to get institutional acceptance for people to understand the safety, soundness, security uh, of all this. But importantly, this is about how are we upgrading the fundamental financial market infrastructure of the way dollars work in capital markets? As we know today, the banking system doesn't move at the speed of the internet. 
there's counterparty risk, there's settlement risk, there's all kinds of challenges that are there. And I think um, you know, BlackRock plays an incredibly large role in capital markets, managing $10 trillion of assets and, and, and dealing with that infrastructure. And so this is an opportunity to bring use cases for USDC. Uh, you know, certainly there are major use cases today in digital asset markets, DeFi, NFTs, uh, you know, cross-border payments. But in core capital markets, we see an enormous opportunity. I would say just the final comment on that is, is that um, you know, I think there's a, a belief in the opportunity in establishing dollar digital currency and private sector-led innovation in dollar digital currency. And I think BlackRock can be a, a huge partner for us uh, as we try and establish that as a preeminent model that the U.S. can really get behind. Mm -hmm. You know, Jeremy, there's this incredible convergence of TradeFi and DeFi here. And I'm wondering, you know, we've reported that you're closer to submitting an application to operate as a bank in the United States. A couple questions there. How soon can we see that kind of an application happen? And also, how much is that contingent on the regulatory environment that we're seeing right now? Well, we're seeing tremendous progress in the regulatory environment. The policy discussion has shifted massively over the last year from one really focused on sort of the risks and challenges of stable coins now to a world where, uh, you know, you know, the, uh, the head of the Federal Reserve, uh, the you know, Secretary Yellen, the head of the OCC, uh, you know, the Undersecretary of Treasury, members of Congress on the left, on the right, Democrats, Republicans. This has become a nonpartisan issue, which is how do we ensure that dollar digital currencies become the currency of the internet and policies moving towards that and making sure that large private sector actors are well regulated uh, that can have federal supervision and so there's really been a move towards that um, we're very excited about the progress that's being made in washington dc the engagement we're seeing from the occ and others and so uh, you know we're we're, um, we're we're very confident that this is going to become not only a federally supervised and regulated critical market infrastructure but it's going to help the United States mm -hmm. be competitive Jeremy, in this, uh, in this uh, digital currency circle, arena. For Circle, how important is this to you to get this done swiftly, perhaps even as early as this year in terms of becoming a bank? Yeah. Look, I think our view is, um, you know, I, I've sort of said this publicly multiple times, there's no OCC exam manual for a stablecoin issuer. This is a new arena. And so, you know, we're dealing with multiple public blockchains. For example, USDC operates on eight different public blockchains. What are the operational risk management procedures? What are the fundamental liquidity requirements? We're a full reserve, like a full reserve bank. We're applying to become a full reserve bank, not a fractional reserve bank. So there's a lot of novelty to stablecoin-based payment systems and banking. It's mm -hmm. a new phenomenon. And so there's a lot of work to do to get that right. We're, we're patient. We want to get that right. We're going to work collaboratively with regulators on that and ultimately get to a place where there's great supervision on critical market infrastructure yeah. that is going to be at the foundation of, of, the, of the economic system in the next you know, 50 years. What about collaboration with others in the space of stable coins? I think of Tether, for example. I mean, is, that, is there a winner takes all? Do you think that you do need to collaborate together? I mean, our view is, um, you know, very specifically, we need, we believe there needs to be, you know, sound national policy and regulatory models around this, not just in the United States, but around the world. We're seeing really strong indications from the UK Treasury and UK government. We're seeing strong indications from other major financial market centers wanting to define the standards for this. So I think regulatory harmonization is really important, having those standards, but also technology standards. So, we, you know, USDC itself 
itself uh, was originally launched and is governed as a set of standards through the center consortium. We want to grow that and scale that and see more stable coins and more currencies around the world that can follow these same set of standards. We think that kind of standards and interoperability as well as regulatory harmonization is what's going to really bring this to life. You know, we're getting a question from a viewer, actually, Jeremy, and that's about USDT and Bitfinex. How would a potential fall of USDT mean for crypto? You know, I, I think that, um, you know, we, we've seen incredible growth from things like USDC. We've seen incredible growth in this whole sector. Uh, I think, you know, major institutional players that are at the core of liquidity in these markets are very, very active uh, in that. And so I, I think that the, the crypto economy is quite resilient and certainly would be resilient from uh, an event like that. We want to thank you so much for taking time, walking us through the funding, where it's going, the institutional adoption, a little bit about the competition as well. Jeremy Allaire, we thank you, Circle CEO. Thank you. And we thank Shanali Basak for the inside track on all things crypto. $925 million. That's how much some of the world's biggest companies are about to spend to buy offsets, carbon offsets from startups that remove the CO2 from the air. Now, it's called the Frontier Fund. It's owned by Stripe, but it also got funding from the likes of Alphabet, Shopify, Meta. I want to get into all of this with Stripe's head of climate, Nan Ransohoff. And it's great to have some time with you, Nan. And talk to us, first and foremost, about you know, the progress you made so far, how, how much you're really looking to be offsetting some of the impact of the businesses that you currently help the network and movement of funds contribute to climate change, perhaps withdraw some of that. Right, so if we sort of start with the science, in order to hit global warming targets, we need to do two things. One, we need to stop emitting in the first place, and two, we need to remove carbon dioxide that's already in the atmosphere and ocean. We're going to need to do a huge amount of both, but we are particularly behind on the second, in part because you know, we didn't really realize we were going to need to do as much carbon removal as we now know we do. Um, and so our focus so far at you know Stripe has been with Stripe Climate. This started with a small corporate commitment. It's expanded to make it easy for many Stripe users to direct a fraction of their revenue to carbon removal, which we then pulled together and used it to buy even more carbon removal down the cost curve. But despite this current progress, we are still not at all on track to scale carbon removal uh, to the required gigatons mm. we need by 2050. And Frontier is really an attempt to get carbon removal on its best possible trajectory so that we have collectively the suite of solutions that we need to hit net zero uh, in the coming decades. Talk to us about how the fund came together. Uh, it came together initially from, you know, the, the genesis was really from, from internally the Stripe Climate Team looking at the science and saying, well, we, while we have made a lot of progress, we have a long way to go. How do we really bend the curve up um, for carbon removal, knowing that we cannot do this just by ourselves. Mm. Um, and so this really sort of formed the impetus of going out and starting to talk to a number of companies of, you know, how do we send a really loud demand signal to the industry of carbon removal that there is going there are going to be buyers for this yeah. that for this technology, which really has been um, the missing link so far uh, that, that has sort of paralyzed carbon removal in many ways. Talk to us about the startups that are tackling just this. How do you analyze them? How do you evaluate the impact that they're going to have? 
Yes. So we are starting to see a really diverse set of companies that are attempting carbon removal, and they're all over the map, right? So everything from traditional direct air capture, um, like Climeworks, which kind of looks like these giant fans pulling CO2 out of the air and injecting it underground into basalt rock where it mineralizes. We have um, uh, running tide, which is doing kelp sinking, essentially growing these large columns of, of kelp biomass in the ocean and then sinking that to the bottom where it stays there forever. Um, and then, you know, Charm Industrial is another example. They're taking waste biomass, like corn stover, turning it into bio oil and injecting it back underground. We're seeing a huge amount of diversity in the kinds of um, approaches to this. And that is exactly what we need. We need an order of magnitude, more attempts here so that we have this portfolio that is going to collectively get to the 6 billion tons we need by 2050 every single year. I hate to ask an awkward question, but it's one that at the moment perhaps some people see when they see Stripe and investing and, and the fact that perhaps the previous series and rounds that you invested in one company didn't go completely right. How do you ensure you got the right founder in place? How do you ensure that you got all the right sort of driving factors behind a business? So I'll, I'll, I'll make one sort of important distinction, which is in the case of Frontier and in the case of Stripe Climate, we are buying carbon removal. So think of us like the customer. We're not oh. taking an equity stake in these companies. And this is really stems from the fact that, you know, when ener with energy, for example, there is an end user of energy. We consume energy and humans derive value from that. With carbon removal, there's no intrinsic buyer because, you know, we're putting it under the ground and storing it there permanently. So nobody has historically wanted to buy carbon removal, especially when it's early and expensive. And, the, you know, as a result, if you're a founder, why would you start a company if, mm. uh, if nobody is going to buy the thing that you're selling? If you're an investor, why would you invest in a company that doesn't have a revenue stream? So our really, our theory of change here is, if we are the customer, we can use that to pull project finance uh, and we can use it to pull more founders into the space. So I'll just draw that distinction between these two companies. The other point I'll make is that, you know, this field is early and we should expect a number of these companies to not work. And that's okay. That is what an early ecosystem looks like. And I think we all need to collectively prepare for a lot of innovation. Some of these will work and some of these won't. But let's learn that now. Let's figure that out now so that by 2030, we feel more confident in the companies that we really want to double down on to scale up. Well said, Nan. We want to thank you so much for talking us thank through so really what the impact is and how you're going to be measuring your success. It's really fascinating. Nan Ransahoff, of course, Stripe head of climate, really thinking about carbon capture there and how to shift the dial. Now, of course, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out our new podcast. You can find it on the terminal as well as online on Apple, Spotify, iHeart. You don't want to miss it. Of course, plenty more coming up tomorrow as we dig into the world of technology and indeed the world of fintech too with the help of the focus on crypto. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.